There was a man with a bad heart, a telephone number scribbled on a cash register receipt and a corpse on the other side of town. But I couldn't see the connection between them until I realized that they were all tied together by the same long rope worth $30,000. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Long Rope. finally wound up a sour case in which I'd been kicked around, disillusioned, and shortchanged. And in my book, a routine like that calls for relaxation. So I'd spent the morning sleeping and the afternoon in a Turkish bath, being worked over on the table by Nick Takalakis, a non-talking masseur who untied knots in more muscles than I thought I had. He was trying to tear loose my Achilles tendon when the phone rang. It was for me. Nick wouldn't let me up, so I took it lying down. Yeah? Marlowe speaking. My name is Sidney Vanetta, Mr. Marlowe. I've tried all afternoon to reach you. Oh? Nick, what can I do for you, Mr. Vanetta? I've already made your reservation with American Airlines. You're leaving on the 10 o'clock plane tonight, and you're taking with you a set of pearls for a certain buyer in Chicago. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Vanetta. Maybe I can... No, maybe, Marlowe. I've checked thoroughly on you and find you entirely qualified, which is important because the pearls are a perfectly matched set in a rope valued at... About $30,000. The buyer wants them, and I made up my mind just this morning to sell. The proceeds will go to my niece. Lucky girl. Indeed she is, particularly since I have no respect for her as a woman. She presumes to be a sculptress of all things, but she's my only heir. I'm selling the pearls simply because I know she would, and I can get more for them. Yeah, I... Ooh! Hey, Nick, wait a minute, will you? Why all the hurry, Mr. Vanetta? First, the buyer is leaving Chicago tomorrow. Second, my heart may fail me at any moment. That's the hurry, Mr. Marlowe. I see. Well, I'll take the job, uh, conditionally. But suppose I come out and talk with you. Telephones are deceptive. Very well. Come to 7241 Adams, just below Western. I'll expect you in an hour, at 6, sharp. Side door will be open, so let yourself in. Sounds like you're alone out there. I am. I just fired my nurse, a Miss Drew, and as stupid a woman as the earth was ever cursed. But <coughs> well, I shouldn't get excited about it. I've engaged a new one due here at 5.30, but who will no doubt be late. So as I say, Marlowe, when you get here, just let yourself in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, Nick, you better hurry it up. I gotta see a man about a rope worth 30 grand. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A rope worth $30,000. Benetta's place on Adams was a big, fancy, and dirty gray place. Forty years ago, it had been a proud, expensive house. But now it squatted at the back end of a rundown yard like a bitter old man too tired to move. I found the side door unlocked and went in. The hallway was dusky and had the odor of moldy wool. I called Vanetta's name but got no answer. So I poked on in until I heard the snapping of an open fire. It came from the library. A big chair was drawn up in front of the fireplace and there Vanetta sat. His chin sunk deep in his chest and his eyes closed. I coughed but he didn't hear me so... I stepped close and shook him gently by the shoulder. Mm-hmm. All it took was a gentle shake. He sagged forward and poured out of the chair like stiff syrup. 
Mr. Veneta was dead. I started for the phone to report the body, but then I heard gravel crunch in the driveway. Someone else was coming in that side door, so I stepped out into the hall and waited. Mr. Veneta, it's... Uh... Oh. Who are you? Philip Marlowe, who are you? Steve Temple, I'm Mr. Veneta's business agent. You're on business now? Yes, I am. It's all the same to you. I came to see Mr. Veneta regarding some pearls. So if you'll excuse... Oh. Yeah, the pearls can wait. Their owner's dead. So it finally happened, huh? You're taking the news very well, Temple. I've been expecting it every day for five years. You found him, I suppose? Mm-hmm. We had an appointment at six. He wanted me to fly his pearls to Chicago. Uh, what are you staring at, Temple? Uh, why, this uh, bottle of medicine here. What about it? Well, for years, he's kept this stuff beside him in case of an attack. Yet, when he actually needed it, it was over here on the sideboard out of his reach. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? Very. He fired Miss Drew, his old nurse, today and didn't expect a new one until 5.30. Say, do you happen to know her name? No one. You mean uh, he's engaged a new nurse? That's right. She's an hour late already. Yeah. Well, for once, that doesn't matter to Mr. Veneta. Say, Temple, are you acquainted with his niece? Vivian Russell? Mm-hmm. Of course. She's a sculptress. The studio out on Fountain, uh, near Bronson, I believe. She was to get the proceeds from the pearls. I, mean, I assumed that, although nothing was ever said. She's his only heir. Mm. Where would those pearls be now? I kept them in a wall safe behind that picture there, consistently against my advice. Yeah, sure. Hmm, opens with a key. Where would that be? Well, he carried it with him on his watch chain. Why? Hey, what are you going to do? I'll take a look at the pearls and then have them impounded. Yeah, this must be the key. Now let's open it up. It's there, that uh, velvet case. As big as an overnight bag. Must be some string of beads. It is, Marlowe. Here, let me open it. There. Right. It's nothing but tissue paper. Yeah. It's not too surprising. While Temple called the police and tried to keep the details straight on a natural death and an unnatural theft, I went over the room again with a new viewpoint. All that turned up without an easy explanation was one, a cash register receipt for $1.34 with the phone number Republic 2809 penciled on the back. And two, the peculiar position of Mr. Veneta's medicine bottle, which Temple had already noticed. I dropped the receipt in my pocket and told Temple to wait for the law. He gave me his home address and phone number and I promised to check in with him later and left. The first stop was a phone booth where I dug into the nurse's registries and hit pay dirt on the fourth call. Miss Drew? Yes, we have a Miss Drew. Is she the one who worked for Mr. Sidney Veneta but was fired this afternoon? That's his opinion. Actually, Miss Drew quit. All right, have it your way. Where can I get in touch with her? She's right here where she's been since 3 o'clock this afternoon. What is the nature of your business, sir? Never mind. You've already answered my question. Uh, but look, Mr. Veneta hired another nurse to replace Miss Drew. Is the new girl one of yours? Absolutely not. Mr. Veneta will never get another nurse from this registry or from any other that I know of. You're so right. He's utterly impossible to please in any way, and we're through trying. Goodbye. Well, Miss Drew was in the clear, and Veneta began to focus as a pretty odd Johnny. But I was still trying to figure why the new nurse hadn't shown up when I reached for a cigarette and brought out the cash register receipt with the phone number on the back. So I tried it. Republic 2809. It rang, but nothing happened. 
I got in my car then and drove up to Hollywood and out Fountain to Bronson where the only Vanetta air, Miss Vivian Russell, had a studio. It was a converted double garage with a lot of north windows. So her new close-to-the-ground Hudson sat outside in the driveway. The adjoining four-room apartment looked cozy enough, if you liked wading through chunks of marble and eating off of last week's newspaper. Yeah, I was braced for a dowdy Amazon with broken fingernails as I rang the bell. That's why the dainty 118 pounds of taboo-scented blonde, who was clad in ten chartreuse yards of whispering silk cut-like lounging pajamas, caught me as flat-footed as a duck when she opened the door. Hi. Did you want something? Uh, yes. Yeah. My name is Marlowe. I'd like to speak to Miss Vivian Russell. You are. So go ahead and enjoy yourself, Marlowe. Uh, may I come inside? I have some bad news, Miss Russell. Oh, well, sure. Come on in. Now, uh, shall I sit down or just hang on to something? Suit yourself. Your uncle, Mr. Vanetta, died this afternoon. Oh, his heart finally gave up, did it, huh? Yeah, yeah, but you shouldn't go all to pieces like that, Vivian. Now, wait. He meant nothing to me, but I'm glad his suffering is over. The pearls are missing, too. Well, really? What happened to them? They were stolen. And don't tell me that means nothing to you, because you're getting the money, 30,000 bucks worth. What? Uncle Sidney intended to give me the money from those pearls? How do you know that? I'm a private detective, he told me. He was my client. Oh, then you're out of a job. Say, how would you like to work for me, Marlowe? I- I'm serious. Now I want those pearls back, you know. Well, for 25 a day in expenses, it's a deal. Now, you tell me something. Who did your uncle hire today to replace Miss Drew? The nurse. Hmm. Why, well, I didn't even know Miss Drew had been fired. How did you know she didn't quit? With Uncle Sidney? <laughs> Try me again. Republic 2809. That doesn't mean a thing. Hmm. You know, Marlowe, you've got an awfully good head. Are you speaking as a sculptress or just an ordinary chiseler? And what is that crack supposed to mean? You didn't know you were getting the money legally. You might have taken the pearls yourself. Oh, stop it, Marlowe. Okay, client. Well, I'll run along. I've got work to do. All right, but uh, don't forget that all work and no play makes for a dull companion. Yes, and it also makes 25 bucks a day. (laughs) I'll be seeing you. All the way down Sunset to Vine Street, I kept telling myself a buck's a buck regardless. But the idea that I'd been grabbed at stayed with me. Vivian Russell had plenty of motive as a dry land pearl diver, and if that's true, she'd need a patsy just to keep her abreast of the situation. I turned north on Vine and twisted up Beachwood Drive to 2000, the number Steve Temple had given me. He had had two hours of playing 20 questions policeman style, and I figured it was time to check his score. Also, Temple was the man to fill in a few blanks on my new client for me. His place was dark, but I got out anyway and started up the walk to his door. I'd gone about a dozen steps into a tunnel of overhanging shrubs when I heard it. Psst. Hey, you. I turned as a man stepped out onto the walk and came toward me slowly. He was tall, wiry, with a thin, arrogant face that sneered out from under an expanse of forehead big enough for three sets of eyebrows. All shaggy. We're gonna have a talk, Mr. Temple. Hey, you're not Temple. Now we both know that. I'm a friend of his. What do you want with Temple? I've got a message for him, but it's personal. Who from? Like I say, it's personal, mister. I'll be back later. Come here. I said I'm a friend of Temple's. If you got a message for him, I'll see that he gets it. Well, okay, then. Tell him that some of his friends are too blasted nosy. No! The guy with the forehead had a great left jab and a pair of hurdle's legs, and by the time I untangled myself from the brush and got out on the walk again, he was gone. 
Well, I know it was a waste of time, but I tried Temple's doorbell twice before I went back to my car. Nothing made sense, except that somebody who knew his way around had stolen a long rope of pearls. And somewhere in the city was a nurse who hadn't shown up on a new job. Beyond that, it was all question marks. I drove down to the filling station on the corner and went inside with the phone. I started to call police headquarters, but instead... Drop the nickel in and dial Republic 2809 again. Just on a hunch. Attorney Barra speaking. Ibarra? I didn't dial you, Ibarra. What? This is Marlowe. Well, you got me anyway. Now listen, Phil, I hear you're on that Venetti case. Yeah. If it'll help you any, the coroner says definitely he died of a heart attack. No homicide involved. Mm. Thanks, Lieutenant. Hey, but look, where are you now? In a flat on the corner of Union and 59th Street. Why? Well, is that phone number there, Republic 2809? Well, that's a great piece of deduction. You just called it. Ibarra, listen, I found that number at Vanetta's place this afternoon. What's going on down there? There's a girl here named Betty Larson. Yeah, she's a nurse, right? No, wrong, Phil. She's a corpse. Oh. Before that, she was a waitress. Just a waitress. Somebody came to a door and killed her for no apparent reason whatsoever. <laughs> just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, Jack Benny will be along on CBS tomorrow night with one of his funniest shows ever. In addition to his regular hecklers, Dennis, Don, Phil, Mary, and Rochester, Claudette Colbert and Vincent Price will pay a call on Jack. And with Don Wilson still wanting a raise in pay and with Jack still trying to starve him into talking terms, you're sure to find the situations full of the hilarity and fast-moving fun that have made CBS's Jack Benny Show the top-rating comedy of all. Yes, remember, CBS also means Catch Benny Sundays. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Long Rope. It was 40 minutes of thick stop-and-go traffic from the time I quit talking to Ibarra until I pulled up near the four stories of faded, sagging tenement on the corner of Union and 59th. But even then, the crazy question that had been weaving in and out of my mind like a 2 a.m. drunk looking for the way to go home was still with me. Why was the telephone number Republic 2809 bracketed by a couple of dead people who, as far as I could see, should have had nothing to do with each other in the first place? And right there for the tenth time running, I drew a complete and unabridged blank. But a minute later, when I climbed out of my coupe and over the bumpers of the half-dozen squad cars that were jammed into the narrow street like so many toy autos that a kid had forgotten about, I quit asking myself riddles and started looking for Detective Lieutenant Ibarra, a quiet man who always preferred fact to fancy. I found him in a cheap but clean uniform-crowded room on the second floor, standing a few feet away from the body of Betty Larson, a girl in a bathrobe who had once been something pretty in her early 20s. Well, Phil, the coroner says she was shot twice in the chest at close range. Died instantly. Is that where she fell, Lieutenant, there near the door? Yeah, looks like she'd just gotten home and into her robe and someone she didn't know knocked on the door. The safety chain was still on when we got here. The windows lead no place. Those chains let a door open just wide enough for the barrel of a gun, is that it? Yeah, but how does all this add with those missing pearls and the rest of that business over on Adams, Marlowe? Not like two and two, believe me. So far, Ibarra, the only question is the telephone number. Tell me, where did this Betty Lawson work? Well, we haven't gotten that far yet. Uh, uh, so long, Lieutenant. Yeah, so long. Right now, we only know that she was a waitress who stayed here with her brother, who was some kind of a student. They got along pretty well together. She was single, too. Lived here since... Oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Tony Barr. Oh, yeah, Mooney. 
Ryan's Cafe, huh? Ryan himself runs it. Okay. Uh, I'll check it personally, right? Hey, is that where she worked? You borrow Ryan's Cafe? Yeah, but it's funny, Phil. She lived here since early 1947. And Mooney tells me she worked that 24-hour hash house just as long, yet it's way over on the other side of town in Western. Western and where, Ebora? The 2300 block. Should be near Washington. Washington, which is only one block from Adams, and that starts to close the big circle. What do you mean, Marlo? Well, that the Veneta place is on Adams near Western. Look, Ibarra, how about letting me huddle over a cup of Ryan's coffee before the law steps in, huh? Oh, I got a hunch you want a check, Phil? Yeah, yeah, that and a cash register receipt. What do you say? Uh, all right, but play it close, fellow. Ryan probably doesn't know about this yet. No? Unless, of course, he squeezed the trigger. Goodbye, Ibarra. I was a half hour getting over to Ryan's cafe on Weston, which turned out to be a lot of steamed over plate glass bragging about a 40-cent hot roast beef sandwich and two-foot-high white chalk letters. And inside, the motif was the same. Everything that Mr. Ryan sold was a bargain. I slid onto a shaky stool opposite a cash customer who was something dirty in a torn overcoat buried deep in a handicapper sheet and coffee. He looked up once, grinned no teeth at me, then hollered for Ryan in the kitchen, who said that he only had two hands and would be out in a minute. But before those 60 seconds ran out, I looked around, and over in a corner in a collection of trash piled next to a broom, I saw a very welcome piece of paper. It was a brother of the cash register receipt that I'd found on Sidney Vanetta's desk, the one that had tied Betty Lawson's murder onto the rope of pearls. I turned back to the counter just as Ryan started toward me. He was a little bigger and a little better looking than the average ape, and on his right arm under thick, coarse black hair that was long enough to braid... There was a tattoo of a dancing girl who, if Ryan ever shaved about his wrist, would freeze to death. What'll it be, mister? Coffee? Yeah. And a little information. You know Sidney Vanetta, Ryan? That screwball with a bump ticker over on Adams? Yeah, I know him. Why? What's up? His time on Earth, for one thing, he's dead. Too bad. Should have taken it easier. Mm. Cream? No. Pearls. What'd you say... Nothing. Ryan, who brought that tray up to the Veneta place this afternoon? I did. Sure it wasn't Betty Lawson? I'm positive. None of the girls would go near that place. Veneta was hard to get along with. Now you tell me something. What are you, mister? Newshound, collection man, or cop? Getting warm, Ryan. I'm a private detective named Marlowe. I'm thrilled. Good night. Before I finish my coffee? Before I throw you out. I don't like too many questions. Not even easy ones, huh? Like who murdered Betty Lawson? Be Betty's dead? Yeah. Over in a flat on 59th Street. Shot twice with a 32. When'd you last see her, Ryan? Why, a couple of hours ago when she quit for the night. Marlo, have the cops got any idea who did it? I don't know. Right now they're looking for a boyfriend. You're crazy. Betty didn't have a boyfriend. Outside of you? Outside of me. So I'm going over to straighten them out now. Mitchie! Mitchie! Yeah? Get out here and take over. I gotta move fast. No, you don't, Ryan. Betty's dead, remember? Yeah, but whoever did it ain't. Now, don't try to stop me, Marlo. You'll get hurt. Look, Ryan, why don't you play smart and... Oh, what's the use? Go on, start running. You won't get very far. For the first time that night, I felt sure of what I was saying. Because even as Ryan had squared himself away to play bounce the private detective, I suddenly noticed a friendly face working hard over a stale donut at the far end of the counter. It was Lieutenant Ibarra. 
And when Ryan tossed his apron aside, grabbed at his coat, and slammed out the front door, Ibarra turned and nodded at a short man nearby who was idly picking his teeth with the end of a book of matches. At that, the man dropped the matches into his pocket and left. Then Ibarra moved over to me. Didn't mean to crowd you here, Phil, but after you left, we found out that Ryan and Betty Larson used to see quite a bit of each other. Don't apologize, Ibarra. Probably would have cost me a couple of front teeth if I hadn't noticed you. Warm up the coffee, mister? Yeah, please. You, Ibarra? No, Phil, I gotta move now. You see, I don't think Ryan did this. Mm -hmm. I told Mooney to follow him, but not to pick him up. Chances are good that Ryan's heading straight for Betty's apartment to demand that the police find out who killed his girl, so I'm going the other way, to Ryan's house. There may be another woman in this jealous one. But no rope of pearls, huh? No, Marlowe, I don't think so. Good night, now. Night, Lieutenant. Well, Mitzi, how long have you worked here? A couple of days. But I don't know nothing about Mr. Ryan. I'm a married woman, and I... Hey, what do you think you're staring at, mister? Maybe something wonderful, Mitzi. Tell me, baby, do you always wear that kind of a uniform when you're working here? Sure. Ryan says this girl should look neat and clean. It helps business. Anything wrong with that? No, no, no. Matter of fact, it might be just the lead I'm after. What are you talking about? Yeah, and if I'm right, baby, the rest of this case will be a cinch. So good night and thanks. You've been a big help, sweetheart. When I got back to the corner of Union and 59th, I took the stairs up to Betty Larson's flat two at a time, crossed the fingers on both hands and prayed that Ibarra was right about Ryan returning to his girl's place. When I stepped into the room a second later... I knew that I'd never doubt the good lieutenant again because standing next to an open window and staring out at nothing was Ryan himself, numbed and red-eyed. I asked him one question. And although his answer was only a couple of words mumbled between trembling lips, it was all I had to know. Now everything. Betty Larson's murder, the death of Vanetta, the guy with the forehead and the missing pearls, the whole shebang was starting to fall together. Oh, come on, baby, be home, please. Marlo, Vivian. Look, honey, I want you to do me a favor. Get hold of Steve Temple and meet me over at your uncle's place on Adams as soon as possible. I need your help. Goodbye. Well, Marlo, what took you so long? I understood you needed our help, but in a hurry at that. I had quite a way to come, Temple. Is Vivian here? Yes, Marlo, Vivian's here, and that means that we can stop counting noses. Now, why do you need our help? Catch someone who stole once and murdered twice? Murdered twice? That's right. You know, it's my guess that whoever stole that rope of pearls also moved Vanetta's medicine out of reach when his heart started skipping beats. Can you prove that? No. No, I can't. But it doesn't matter, really, because the guilty one also killed a party named Lawson. And when you pay for one, Vivian, you paid for them all. I don't follow you, Marlowe. Who are you talking about? I'm not sure, but this much is certain. Vanetta called me at five. When I got here at six, he was already dead and the pearls were gone. Now, I figured that whoever took them argued with them first, which makes that person, one, somebody who knew Vanetta, and two, responsible for the old man's death. Then the new nurse couldn't possibly have been the one who stole the pearls. No, but the new nurse could have been the one who overheard everything while standing right here. Haven't you been able to find this nurse? No, not yet. But sooner or later, honey, I'm sure we'll catch up to him. Him? Yes, I, Temple, uh, I said him. Nurse Larson is a male with a lot of forehead and few ethics. The person you killed was a sister Betty, a waitress. And don't move, Temple, or I'll be glad that I was forced to put holes in you. Temple's the one? He stole the rope of pearls? Yeah. But this nurse Lawson, who saw him do it, got in touch with him, right, Temple? It was filthy blackmail. But you were going to stop by a filthier murder, and you almost did. 
Because somehow or other, you got the right room in the right house on Union and 59th, but the wrong party. Isn't that about it, Temple? Yes, Marlowe. That's about it. Oh, leave me alone, Temple. Now, Marlowe, you don't shoot me without going through Vivian first. Dear Vivian, Sidney's precious niece was going to have the pearls all to herself. Don't move, Marlowe. It'll cost Vivian her life if you do. I doubt that very much, Temple. Larson. That's right. Joe Larson, forehead and all. Now, you, Temple, step away from that girl or I'll tear you to pieces. No, Larson, no, no. Now, we can still do business like you said in that note you sent me. I'll split with Shut you. up. You forget two things, Temple. First, you tried to kill me. And second, you did kill my sister. Now, why don't you run for it? Or are you afraid? Which is it? Come on, Temple, talk. I... I am afraid. Just about winds things up. Yep. Joe Larson sent up for attempted extortion and Temple... Sent up for good. Mm-hmm. Say, Marlowe, when you called a while ago and said that you wanted Temple and me to help you, did you know then that Temple was the murderer? No, I didn't, Vivian. Then I only knew that whoever had killed Betty Larson had mistaken her for the new nurse and that the actual nurse was Betty's brother, Joe. Where did you get hold of that, Phil? Well, it started in Ryan's Cafe, Barra, just after you left. I had nurses on the brain, I guess. And when I took a good look at the waitress there, I suddenly realized that her white uniform, white shoes, and white cap could easily confuse a guy like Temple, who also had nurses on the brain. Well, um, I can see a killer making a mistake about appearances, all right, but I still don't understand how it is that the telephone number of my uncle's nurse turned out to be Betty's apartment. Because a nurse did live there, honey. Betty's brother was a medical student, part-time male nurse, and full-time bum. You see... Ryan, who brought food to Uncle Sidney, knew that he needed a new nurse. And he sold him on the idea of Joe Lawson. Because he wanted his girlfriend's brother to have a job. Oh, I get it. Say, I know what I'm going to do with those pearls. Sell them? To the highest bidder. Oh, no, I'm going to break up that set. Break up the set? Yeah, I'd like very much to get a pair of earrings out of them. Oh, and uh, for each of you, uh, a set of cufflinks. Good night, gentlemen. When Vivian got into her car, aimed it toward a collection of chipped rocks on Fountain near Bronson, and waved goodbye, it was nearly three o'clock in the morning. No. After I said so long to Ibarra and started back to my apartment on Franklin, an idea hit me for the first time. A pearl is the result of the irritation of an oyster, a disease. And when you string a lot of diseases together, the result is frequently a plague. (laughs) But it's from plagues like that that I make a living. (laughs) That's what I get for reading books. I wonder if I'll ever go anyplace where I can wear pearl cufflinks. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Junius Matthews, Louis Van Ruten, Faye Baker, David Ellis, Lillian Bayef, and Ed Begley. Lieutenant Detective Ibarra is played by Jeff Corey. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... 
A corpse that wouldn't stay dead, a pistol with a silencer on it, and a fortune in a black satchel spelled death for the big city boys when they finally got together in lonesome Arizona. Population 802. Stars light, stars bright, and that's no optical illusion. The brilliant, gleaming list of stars on CBS tomorrow night. Van Johnson's the star on the Prudential Hour drama. Spike Jones will positively appear in a sketch getting the war paint off Bob Hope's latest movie. Jack Benny will have Claudette Colbert and Vincent Price as his special guests. Amos and Andy, Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade, and Lumen Abner are the next bright stars in line. Then Helen Hayes, first lady of the stage, starring on her Sunday night electric theater followed by Hollywood's own Eve Arden in the wonderfully comic series, Our Miss Brooks. In the next to closing, another bright comedy, Life with Luigi, and the whole star lineup, topped off by the world's most brilliant adulpates, the experts on It Pays to Be Ignorant. Jack Benny's program will come to you over all of these same stations, and the others in this vast array of stars will be heard over most of them. Top writers, top directors, and top stars of American show business come to you on CBS. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Why are camels by far America's most popular cigarette? Two of the reasons are flavor and mildness. No other cigarette has Camel's rich, full flavor. And no other cigarette offers this proof of mildness. In a coast-to-coast test of hundreds of people with normal throats, noted throat specialists reported not one single case of throat irritation due to smoking Camel's. Try Camel's yourself. Then you'll know why Camel leads all other brands by billions of cigarettes per year. What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? That question was asked a few years ago of 113,597 doctors. The brand name most was Camel. Recently, that question was again asked of tens of thousands of doctors across the country. Doctors in all branches of medicine. And again, the brand name most was Camel. Yes, according to these nationwide surveys, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Friends, smoke the cigarette so many doctors enjoy. Change to Camels for 30 days and see how mild, how flavorful, how enjoyable a cigarette can be. Yes, change to Camels for 30 days and you'll stay with Camels from then on. How mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? Make the Camels 30-day To find out how well camels agree with the throats of smokers, this far-reaching test was made. Hundreds of people from coast to coast, people with normal throats, smoked only camels for 30 days. Each week, leading throat specialists examined the throats of these smokers. They made 2,470 examinations and reported not one single case of throat irritation. Due to smoking camels, try camels for 30 days and see how mild, how flavorful, how enjoyable a cigarette can be. How mild, how mild, how mild, how mild, how mild, how mild can a 
Here's Dick Powell with a special message. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of camels have sent more than 198 million gift camels to our armed forces. This week, gift camels go to hospitalized servicemen and veterans at Veterans Hospitals, Framingham, Massachusetts, and Durban, Michigan. U.S. Naval Hospital, San Diego, California. And to all hospitals operated for the U.S. Air Forces in the Far East. Now until next week, enjoy camels. I always do. Mr. District Attorney, starring David Bryan. Mr. District Attorney, champion of the people, defender of truth, guardian of our fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it shall be my duty as district attorney not only to prosecute to the limit of the law all persons accused of crimes perpetrated within this county, but to defend with equal vigor the rights and privileges of all its citizens. This is David Bryan. In a moment, we'll bring you another case from the files of Mr. District Attorney. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now, here is our star, David Bryan, as Paul Garrett, Mr. District Attorney. To a district attorney, a county is like a reservoir. The level isn't always the same. People move in, people move away. Good people, bad people. The bad ones make trouble. This case started in a trailer parked in an empty field on the outskirts of town. Howdy, Joe. Howdy, Russ. Ain't you gonna ask me in? Yeah, sure. Come on in. What's on your mind, Russ? Joe, I figured that two weeks is long enough for old friends to be mad at each other, especially friends that grew up together back home. I come to ask you to shake hands. <laughs> you know, now that you're here, I... Can't figure just what we've been mad about. Ain't nobody I'd rather shake hands with than you, Russ. <laughs> You're my boy. But we ain't never going to talk politics again. <laughs> oh, you got a deal. Uh, I was just about to fix me some grub. Why don't you stay and eat? Oh, thanks, but uh, Ella's expecting me back at the motor court. You heard from Marge? Uh, yeah. I got a telegram from Dallas this morning. She's on her way back. Her sister must be better then. Must be. Uh, Marge will stay with her a while longer. I'm mighty close. Ellie would like to have you and Marge over for dinner when she gets back. Uh, Ellie's been beefing at me ever since you and me fell out. Uh, she'll be here tomorrow. Well, good deal. Then how about tomorrow night? We'd be proud to come. Swell. Ella'll be tickled. Well, I uh, guess I'd better be getting along with the old pay envelope. So long, Joe. So long, Russ. Thanks for coming. Oh, uh, by the way, 
You ain't seen your brother-in-law, have you? Oh? No, no, not for a couple of days. Why, he, uh, he owe you money, too? Well, you know Orville. He owes half the guys out at the plant. If he could wire an instrument panel the way he can borrow money, they'd make him a lead man. I'll make good whatever no, you... No, nothing doing. You ain't responsible for his debts. Good night, Joe. Well, good night, Russ. Just a second. Oh, did you forget something? Oh, it's you, Orville. Well, who'd you expect? Russ was just here. I thought it was him coming back. I know he was here. I've been sitting out back long enough waiting for him to leave. Could have come in. Russ don't bite. Unless you got a reason for ducking him. Well, he don't like me. Reckon that's your fault, Orville. Oh, sure. Everything's my fault. How come you're standing up for him? I thought you and him was on the outs. Not anymore. Besides, it's none of your business. What'd you come for, Orvie? Well, Joe, I... I need some help. I, I got my check cashed, and I... I guess I didn't notice it till I was almost to the rooming house, but... Well, I got a hole in my pocket. Hey, you see? I, I lost my pay. Do I look like a half-wit to you? Joe, I swear... The I... last time you came with that story, you said your pocket was picked. And the time before that, you said you got stuck with a loan you signed for somebody. It was the truth, Joe, honest. Stop using the word honest, Orvie. Doesn't sound right coming from you. If your money's gone, you lost it in a pay-night crap game at Hollins. I haven't been near Hollins in weeks. Ah, oh, Joe, you gotta help me. My wife will buck like a maverick under a Brandon iron if I don't bring some money home. You insist I got some side money. I know you have. Yes, and this time we're gonna keep it. Joe, I need money. I ain't leaving here without it. We're family. Family? Fat lot that means to you. There's nothing here for you, Orville. You better try someplace else. I said I wasn't leaving without the money. Reckon you'll be here a long time then, Orville. So you'll have to excuse me. I'm fixing my supper. I ain't gonna ask you again, Joe. Glad to hear. Just gonna keep ignoring me, huh? Like I wasn't even here. That's right. Maybe I can make you pay a little attention with this frying pan. Orvi, put that down. No, I'm going to remind you I'm still here. Like this. I told you I wasn't leaving. I told you, Joe. I warned you. Refusing help to your own kin. I'll take it myself. You ain't going to be needing it anymore. I've kept the whole field blocked off, Chief. Nobody's been near the trailer except Prager's wife and me and the lab crew. Oh, good, Harrington. Prager, the dead man's name? Yeah, that's right. Joe Prager, aircraft worker. His wife was in Dallas, Texas, visiting a sick relative. Found the body when she got back this morning. Mm-hmm. Where is she now? Yeah, she's sitting over there in my car. I tried to get her to go over to one of the motels on the highway, but she won't. Uh, she's in, you know, well, she's in kind of a daze. Oh, shock. That's to be expected. I wonder why they parked that trailer in an empty field. Plenty of trailer camps around town. Yeah, save money, I guess. You know how some of those migratories are. Come to the cities and save all they can. Then go back to the home state and buy a piece of land. Mm-hmm. There was a gasoline lamp in the trailer for light. But what do they do for water? Well, there was a well out back. 
Used to be a farmhouse here some time ago. Must have been moved. Part of the foundation is still there. I guess they had enough to get by. You want to walk out to the road? I can have one of the cars radio for a pickup on the body. Okay. Who's that coming up the trail? Huh? One of the boys from the squad? He's not in uniform. Hey, you. Stay right where you are. Don't come any further. Told them not to let anybody come into this field. Well, he didn't get too far, whoever he is. Who are you, fella? Who told you you could come in here? Didn't you see those police cars out on the road? They said it was all right. I come to help my sister. Who's your sister? Marge. Joe Prager's wife. He was my brother-in-law. That's why the cops let me through. How about it, Chief? All right. Your sister's sitting in one of those cars over there. I guess it'll help to have somebody with her. Thanks. Oh, just a second. Yeah? Got an aircraft ID button on your shirt? That's right. Orville James. Well, that's a good picture of you. Yeah. Did your brother-in-law work in the same plant? Yeah, not the same department, though. How'd you find out he was killed? Well, the, the cops down by the road told me. Isn't the aircraft plant working today? Yeah, sure it is. You on the swing shift? No, a day shift. Plant is on the other side of town. How did you get out here now? Well, it's my lunch hour. I got a lift over this way. I'd just about take you a whole hour. More if you don't catch a ride going right back right away. You make a habit of hitchhiking out here on your lunch hour? No, of course I don't. Anything else you want to know? Yes. When did you see your brother-in-law last? I don't know. Three, maybe four days ago. Not yesterday? No. Not even at work? It's a big place. We didn't even work in the same building. What time did you quit yesterday, Orville? Five o'clock. Then what did you do between six and eight o'clock? And who was with you while you did it? Why, well, I, I cashed my check at Holland's, uh, to a place over near the plant, and, and then I... And what? Did you come out here? Yes. What? I said yes. Yes, I come out here. I'd have told you before if you'd asked me the right way. Why did you say you hadn't seen Joe Prager in three or four days if you saw him last night? I didn't see him last night. Now, listen, you just told us I you... told you I'd come out here, but I didn't see Joe. Why not? If he didn't answer your knock, the trailer door wasn't locked, and you're a relative. I didn't even knock. I changed my mind about going in because there was a car parked outside. Not Joe's own car, another car. He had company. I recognized the car. It belongs to Russ Newcomb. And I didn't want to go in while he was there because I didn't want to get mixed up in no argument. Who is Russ Newcomb, and why did you expect an argument? Russ is a welder at the plant. Him and Joe had been friends, but they got teed off at each other a couple of weeks ago. Hadn't been talking. And why would Newcomb be visiting here? Why don't you ask Newcomb that? Now, are you going to let me go to my sister, or ain't you? Chief? Let him go. All right, Orville, go ahead. Yeah, looks like this one might crack easy, Chief. Yes. I want to contact Miss Miller and get the lab crew back here. Oh, why? Lots of tire tracks in this field. Ah, Prager's own car, probably. Yes, but there should be a set from Newcomb's car, too, if he drove in. When we get to court with him, I want to be able to prove it. First squad cars pulled in off the road here. We can use their radio phone. What unit is this? Well, let me see this number. Ah, there. 414. Thanks. 414 to Central. Central to 414. Go ahead, 414. Yeah, this is Mr. Garrett. Give me a telephone hookup to my office, please. Stand by.
attorney's office. Mr. Garrett, Miss Miller. Yes, sir. I want a moulage crew from the lab to come back on this trailer case. Have them take castings of all unusual tire tracks that seem to be recent. Recent, yes, sir. I'll contact you again in a few minutes as Harrington and I drive in. And meanwhile, call the Braddock Aircraft Plant. Get the home address of Russ Newcomb. Russ Newcomb. Yes, he may be working. If he is, have the plant security put a watch on him until I get there. But tell them not to let him know he's being watched unless he tries to leave. And if he does try? Well, then they can take him into custody pending my arrival to make a formal charge of murder. This is David Bryan. Before we continue with Mr. District Attorney in the case of the frying pan murder, here is an important message I'd like you to hear. And now back to David Bryan, starring as Paul Garrett, Mr. District Attorney. An aircraft worker had been murdered in his isolated trailer home. His brother-in-law had disclosed that there was bad blood between the victim and another worker at the plant, and that he had seen them together on the night of the killing. Harrington and I drove out to the plant, and the man we were after was on the job. He was pointed out by the plant security guard. Hey! Hey, you up there! Newcomb! You want me? Yeah! Knock off for a minute. Come down from the wing, will you? Be right there! Watch him, Harrington. Don't worry. What can I do for you? District Attorney's office. This is the DA, Mr. Garrett. My name's Harrington. Oh, police stuff, huh? Now, that's right, Newcomb. Let's go into the washroom there where we can talk. Well, what's up? You fellas find the woman who owned that purse? Purse? What purse? What are you talking about? Well, that's why you're here, ain't it? I found a woman's purse on the street about uh, two months ago. I turned it into the police. Well, we know nothing about that, Mr. Newcomb. It has nothing to do with our call. Oh. Well, what do you want to see me about? Do you know Joe Prager? Why, sure. Joe's my best friend. Uh, Joe ain't in any kind of trouble, is he? When did you see him last? Well, only last night. Remember what time? Well, uh, I reckon it was uh, about 7 o'clock. You go out to his trailer to see him? That's right. You say he was your best friend? Yeah. Other people say you weren't on speaking terms for the last couple of weeks. Well, we weren't. Until last night. We got in a dumb political argument one day during lunch here. Both got hotter than we should have. But you patched that up last night, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's why I went out to see Joe, to bury the hatchet. You sure you mean hatchet, not frying pan? Look, you fellas are asking me something, but you ain't telling me nothing. You, uh, you talked politics with Prager again last night? No, we just patched up our beef. I asked him to bring his wife over to supper with us tonight, and then I left. That's all. And Prager was still alive when you left? What do you mean, was he still a... still alive? Are you telling me that Joe's dead? Don't you know, mister? He was beaten to death last night with an iron frying pan. Joe? Joe Prager? Did you see anybody else at the trailer? No. No, we were alone. Just the two of us. Newcomb, the law requires me to warn you that anything you say from this point on can be used against you. 
Used against me for what? You're talking like I'm under arrest. You are under arrest for the murder of Joe Prager. But you're wrong. I... Take these off. What are you doing to me? What did you do to Prager? Get moving, mister. You take him in, Harrington. I'll be back at the office by the time you have him booked. Where are you going? Down to the morgue. The body will be in by now, and I still haven't spoken to Prager's wife. some kind of an argument. But I didn't think it'd ever be as bad as, as this. I never thought Russ would be the kind to kill him. Was your husband having trouble with anybody other than Russ Newcomb? No. Did he seem worried? Troubled about anything? No. We were saving money. Saving for a down payment on a house and a piece of land back home in Texas. So Joe could be his own man someday. Working for that kept him happy. Now I'll be using what he saved to bury him. I'm sorry, Mrs. Frager. Why did Russ do a thing like this to him? Why? Why? I don't know. I've never been able to understand why men do a lot of things they do to each other. I'll be in the next room for a while, if you need me. Chief. Harrington, you booked Newcomb so quickly? Yeah, I turned him over to Charlie Rand. Thought you might need me. What's the stuff on the table? No, personal effects. The lab boys removed from Prager's clothing. Uh, there's a couple of things you ought to see. Like what? Well, this bank book for one was in Prager's shirt pocket. Hmm. $930. Mm-hmm. All deposits the same. $80 each. Made every Friday, uh, the day after payday. Well, he won't make any deposits today. No, but yesterday was payday. But Prager's pay wasn't on him. No cash at all? Just what you see there. Less than a dollar and change. And he might have kept the money someplace in the trailer. Uh-uh. The lab boys checked it. Not a dime. When you turned Newcomb over to Rand for booking, did Newcomb have any money on him? Eh, about five dollars, that's all. He's had since last night to hide the money, though, Chief. All we've got to do is find out where he hit it, and we've got a double motive for the killing. The bad blood for the argument they had, and robbery. The robbery makes me wonder if we've got any motive at all, so far as Newcomb is concerned. Well, what makes you say that? Remember what Newcomb said when we picked him up at the plant about finding a woman's purse and turning it over to the police? Yeah, yeah. I want to find out if he actually did, and if there was any money in the purse. What's the connection? A man who finds money in the street and turns it over to the police isn't liable to commit murder in the commission of a robbery. I'll call Miss Miller and have her check the police lost and found while we're on the way in. While she's at it, I'll have her check with somebody else. Who? Newcomb's butcher. Newcomb's butcher? That's right, Harrington. Newcomb said they were expecting the Pragers over for dinner tonight. I wanted to find out what kind of meat Mrs. Newcomb intended to serve. Patronized a butcher shop on Emerson near Longacre Boulevard. 
Well, what about the order? Mrs. Newcomb ordered stewing beef yesterday for tonight's dinner, but she called up this morning and changed the order to lamb chops. Eight lamb chops. Is that a usual order? Eight chops? No, the butcher said she always ordered four at a time, but only for Sunday dinners. You figure anything from that, Chief? Well, don't you? Eight chops instead of four? Two apiece. They must have been expecting the Pragers. And Prager was dead, and she put that order in. Newcomb might have told her to order them for a cover-up. Yeah, it's a little too smart, Harrington. Newcomb didn't strike me as being that clever. Well, that may be the lost and found report. I'll get it. Uh. District Attorney's Office. Yes, Pete, let's have it. Our men find any sign of bloody clothing when they check Newcomb's place? No, but they're still checking dry cleaners and laundries. Thanks, Pete. Bye. Turned in a purse all right, Mr. Garrett, the 4th Precinct, two months ago. There's no identification in it, and it still hasn't been claimed. Any money in it? $83. Newcomb could have taken that and shoved it right in his pocket. Come on, Harrington. Where to now? Back to Prager's trailer. I don't know, Chief. We fine combed the place, and there's nothing we didn't see before. I see a deep heel and pointed toe marks on the ground there. A lot of them. Fragus, Chief. He wore western boots. Some regular shoe marks here. Not many. Hmm? Where? Damp ground leading toward the well. Yeah, might have been one of the lab boys coming back for a drink. I don't think so. Why? And whoever it was sat down here, leaned back against the well with his feet stretched out. You can see where the edges of his heels were resting on the ground. Cigarette butt there, too. I want that lab crew back again. What for? To drag this well. For what? We've got the body and the murder weapon. I'm looking for clothing. Newcomb or anybody in a car might have driven away from here in bloody clothes and changed it home. But it was somebody on foot... They'd have had to hitchhike or take public transportation. They wouldn't try it in bloody clothes. You're figuring on Orville. Orville said he came here at 7 o'clock after he cast his check at Holland's. Yeah, yeah. You know what goes on at Holland's on pay night. Backroom crap game in which Orville lost. How do you know? Because he left early. The winners don't leave early. The other players make them stick to the end. Yeah, yeah. They get sore to winner who quits without giving a chance to get even. Let's get that crew out here. Go on, get in there. Stop your pushing. What's the idea? What's this all about? Hello, Orville. Yeah. What's the idea pulling me away from the ball game? What do you want now? A few things rolled up in that bundle on the lab table that you might be able to identify them. What are they? Open it. Find out. We found them in the well behind Prager's trailer, wrapped around a rock. Go ahead, Orville. Open it. Oh, whose are they? Joe's or, or Newcomb's? We want you to tell us. Blood on them is Joe's. We know that. What's the matter, Orville? You look kind of sick. I, I'm just upset about Joe, that's all. I, I was at the funeral home with my sister almost all night. Well, it's nice to relax at a ball game after such a rough night. All right, Orville, how about it? You ever see these things before? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. Who do they belong to? Well, I hate to say it, but they look like Newcombs. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, it gives you fellas a real tight case against Newcomb now, don't it? It would, if it weren't for the laundry mark on the shirt. A laundry mark? That's right, Orville. Your laundry mark. They, they can't be laundry mark. They can't. Keep your hands off those things. Let me go. Let me go. Out of my arm. Might as well tell the truth now, Orville. It'll be better all around. I, I, I didn't do it. I, I didn't. I, all right, Harrington. Let's take him into the detention cells. My wife. My wife always hounded me about money. Always screaming about how hard she worked. Always yelling about how she was ruining her hands, scrubbing my workshop. But she wasn't. She was sending them out to a laundry. A laundry, and I didn't know it. Laundry marks the lazy. I'll kill her. I'll kill her. You're not going to kill anybody, Orville. Not anymore. Your killing days are over. Oh, Mulligan, open it up. All right, Orville. Inside. This is David Bryan again. I hope you've enjoyed this case from the file of Mr. District Attorney. I'll be back in just a moment after this message from our sponsor. Now, here is the star of Mr. District Attorney, David Bryan, with a word about the program you have just heard. Orville James was tried and convicted on a charge of murder in the first degree with a mandatory death sentence. The case was appealed and a new defense of temporary insanity was made. But both the psychiatrists and the appellate judges ruled that Orville James was sane. He was subsequently executed in the manner prescribed by law. During all his time in the death house, he was alone. He never had a visitor. Now, this is David Bryan inviting you to join us when we present our next case based on the facts of crime from the file of Mr. District Attorney. Mr. District Attorney was originated by Phillips H. Lord.